Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Gettysburg's Forgotten Cavalry Actions, Eric Wittenberg. Eric Wittenberg, author of Gettysburg's Forgotten Cavalry Actions. How long have you been a Civil War fan? Oh, my. I am 51 years old, and it dates back to third grade. I grew up in eastern, southeastern Pennsylvania, and as you know, Brian, you can't swing a dead cat there and not hit something historical. And uh, so I've always had an interest in history, and in the instance of the Civil War, it was a trip to Gettysburg when I was in third grade, and I've been hooked ever since. What do you remember about that trip? I get asked that often, and it's interesting because it ties into old, some of my primary interests in the battle. There are three things that I specifically remember about that trip. One, of course, is the rocks at Devil's Den, but I think that's every kid. The other two things that really stuck with me about that day were Buford and his cavalrymen on day one and the death of John Reynolds. And my interests in Gettysburg are primarily oriented around cavalry operations in the first day of the battle, even to this day. How often do you go? I try to get there five, six times a year. I live in Columbus, Ohio, and it's a, it's a six hour or so drive from my house to the battlefield. So it takes some planning, but I try and get there five or six times a year. For all the times you've been there, how do you, why, why do you still go so often? I'm drawn there. I feel compelled to go there several times a year see something again, see something new. Every once in a while, I still do find something new. You still learn new things? Always learn new things. Invariably learn new things. Um, sometimes it's for to get away from my job. Sometimes it's just to go and visit friends. There's lots of reasons. I never really need an excuse. There were a lot of battles in the Civil War. Why is it that Gettysburg has such interest? For, for everybody beyond. Well, I, let me begin with me and then I'll, I'll, I'll expand that. From my perspective, the, it, it really goes two ways. It's from the fact that it was my first battlefield and it was the one that I have spent the most time at. I went to college in Carlisle, it's only 35 miles away, so it's, it was easy for me to get there. And I've spent the most time there. Um, I feel compelled by the story. I feel compelled by the personalities. I feel compelled by the fact that it took place in, in my home state of Pennsylvania. Uh, with respect to everybody else on a much grander scale, I think that it is probably a case of the human drama, the fact that the Battle of Gettysburg tends to get the most, for lack of a better way to put it, publicity of any of the battlefields. It probably also has to do with the fact that uh, Gettysburg is often considered to be the turning point in the war, that once the combination of the Union victory at Gettysburg and then the surrender of the Confederate Army at Vicksburg the, the following day are viewed as the turning points. 
So I think that the combination of those two things draws people. The battlefield is, is probably the best and marked and interpreted of any of them. That's not to say there aren't others that are equally well marked and interpreted, but it's, it's the one that gets the most visitation and it's the one that gets the most play. I mean, I think about my library at home and, and there's a very large percentage of it that's devoted to, to the Battle of Gettysburg. There's a magazine that's published twice a year that's devoted entirely to the Battle of Gettysburg, nothing but. And it's just one of those things that people seem to be drawn to it. Now, this book was first published in 1998. It was. And this is the revised and expanded edition. First of all, what's new in it? There are about 15,000 words worth of new material in the main text of the book. Uh, a lot of it were things that I found after the fact. Uh, I, over the years, when you, when you do this kind of work, people come out of the woodwork to share things with you. So some of them are things that people have given me over the years saying, here, I thought you might be interested in this. Some of it marks uh, acquisitions that I've made. As an example, there's uh, some material in there now that I did not have access to in 1996 and 7 when I wrote it in the form of a letter that was written by one of the Union artillery officers that's featured in the story, Captain William Graham, uh, who was a nephew of George Gordon Meade writing to his first cousin, George Meade, George Meade Jr., uh, declining an invitation to attend the dedication of the monument to the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry. And in it, Graham tells the story of Farnsworth's charge from his perspective. And the Meade collection was in private hands. And in the mid-2000s, uh, six, seven, eight years ago, the collection, much of the collection was auctioned off. And I purchased that letter. I actually own that letter today. So that was something I obviously didn't have access to when I wrote the book. And there's a lot of material that has surfaced that other people have turned up, have been kind enough to share with me. And it was enough that I was able to substantially add to the book. The other thing that's been added to it is there's about a 6,000 word essay at the back of the book that I wrote with my friend J. David Petruzzi that discusses the where the actual events of Farnsworth's charge took place. There is a a revisionist theory out there that places it in a different location and uh, JD and I felt that it was necessary to rebut that and that essay is in the back of the book. So those are the primary things. There are also some, one of the maps was replaced. There are some additional images that have been added of participants and then finally uh, I reshot all of the modern day battlefield photos to reflect the changes in the battlefield that have taken place since all the tree cutting has gone on that none of that had happened when the original edition was written. What do you think of all the tree cutting? Oh, I think it's spectacular. Why is that? By restoring sight lines to what they were in 1863, you get a much better perspective on the field. You don't realize, for instance, how close Little Round Top and, and the triangular field actually are to the, some of the other features on the battlefield unless the trees are gone. You, don't, you can't see how close they are to the Emmitsburg Road, as an example, with that large, thick, dense growth of trees in between. Now that that's gone, you can see that, and you get the same perspectives that the soldiers had. And uh, I'm, I'm all for the tree cutting. Uh, I think that it was a brilliant idea, and I'd like to see it implemented at some of the other battlefields.
One of the other things uh, in your book that must be new in the appendix is a walking and driving tour of the sites of the charges with GPS coordinates. That, that is definitely something new. Yeah, that is something new. The obviously GPS coordinates were, were not in vogue in 1998 and it just seemed to me to be an appropriate addition. Uh, we started doing the driving tours. Uh, I've done two other books with, with J.D. Petruzzi. Uh, one is called Plenty of Blame to Go Around, Jeb Stewart's Controversial Ride to Gettysburg, and the other is called, that we did with our friend Mike Nugent is called One Continuous Fight, the Retreat from Gettysburg and the Pursuit of Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. And we started adding the driving tours with Plenty of Blame, which was published in 2006. And then in 2008, when One Continuous Fight was published, we added the GPS. And it's been very popular. We get lots of compliments for it. So. I figured might as well add it to this as well. And one of my other books is called uh, Protecting the Flank that is a study of Brinkerhoff's Ridge and East Cavalry Field. And while that had a driving tour in it when it was published in 2001, I think it was, I've gone back and added the GPS coordinates to it too, and that will be out later this year. People seem to really like it. You, if you take your GPS unit, you can program in the coordinates before you go set the thing to go and it'll take you from place to place to place without you having to do anything. It makes it almost impossible to get lost. Do you have a big collection of Civil War stuff? I have about 2,000 books and I have some documents that I've accumulated over the years. I, I like autographs so I've collected some autographs. I have a few primary source documents and I have uh, some weaponry. Being a cavalry student, I have uh, an 1863 Sharps cavalry carbine. I have an 1861 light cavalry model light cavalry saber. I have a, a pistol that's been identified to an officer of the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry. <coughs> and then I also have a full-scale replica of one of the lances that was carried by the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry in the first half of the year that was made for me by a friend of mine by the name of Tom Canfield who uh, has done an extremely exacting replica of this lance. It's nine feet long. It's hard to take it anywhere because of that. When you get together with other people like you who are so immersed in the Civil War, what do you talk about? What's the conversation like? Sometimes it's about sports. <laughs> <laughs> but most often it's about what are, what are you working on? What, you're, what are you finding in your research? Is there anything I can help you with? You want to, would you like me to review your manuscript for you? Those types of things. I, I've had a lot of people who've been very kind to me over the years and sharing things with me and, and taking time to review and comment on my manuscripts. So I try to return that favor whenever I can. Uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in karma and I've always believed that if I can do something to help somebody as a thank you for all that's been done for me over the years, I will always do my level best to return the favor. Has the history of the battle changed since, say, since this book was first published in 1998, perceptions of the importance of certain people or certain events? It's constantly evolving, Brian, and that's the thing. It's, it's constantly evolving for the simple reason that new things turn up all the time. You know, whenever you think you've gotten the last word on something, uh, something new turns up and things change. Yeah, and that, the example of that letter by Captain Graham that I mentioned to you, to, to George Meade uh, has a different account of the exchange between Judson Kilpatrick and Elon Farnsworth from any I've ever seen anywhere else. And that's the one that I included in the new edition of the book, just because it was something different. 
This is the Captain Graham, who I think you described as being universally hated. No, that was Captain Cram. Oh, Cram of the Sixth uh -huh. U.S. Cavalry, who the the men referred to as Damn Cram. No, this was uh, this was Captain William Montrose Graham, who was the maternal nephew of George Gordon Meade, and who commanded the battery of horse artillery that served with Wesley Merritt's Reserve Brigade during the fighting on South Cavalry Field on July 3rd. Now, your book is called Gettysburg Forgotten Cavalry Charges. Why are they Actions. Actions, sorry. Why are they forgotten? They have always been, these three actions that the book addresses, which are the charge of Elon Farnsworth, the charge and death of Elon Farnsworth and his brigade, Wesley Merritt's fight on South Cavalry Field, and then the Battle of Fairfield that took place and the after all of which took place on July 3rd have been really overlooked for a lot of reasons. One is none of them lack the drama of the mounted saber charges on, on East Cavalry Field. And they've also been obviously overshadowed, <clears throat> excuse me, by the drama and majesty of Pickett's Charge. And the Park Service, to give credit where it's due until really until the, the first edition of the book came out, really didn't do anything to encourage the thought that the Battle of Gettysburg didn't end with the repulse of Pickett's Charge. And much of what takes place in that book actually happened after the repulse of Pickett's Charge. So the Park Service has now begun to shift its interpretation a little bit. There's now some interpretation out there of Farnsworth's charge, whereas there never was before the original edition of the book was published. And um, it's nice to see that the Park Service is starting to pay attention to these events, and they are in turn getting some interest from the public, which is ultimately why we do what we do. What was life like for the cavalry? If you were a cavalry soldier, were you an elite? Some thought of it that way. In the Southern Army, it was more considered that way for the simple reason that many of the Confederate cavalry units were militia units that were made up of gentlemen. In the Northern Cavalry, it was much different because mostly, while some of the officers were certainly the elites, um, most of the enlisted men were guys who were, worked in shops and factories and didn't know the first thing about taking care of horses, didn't know the first thing about riding horses, had to learn all these things. So for the first year and a half of the war, the Confederate cavalry pretty much rode circles around the Union cavalry. And, and the tide began to change in the late fall of 1862. And by the summer of 1863, the two forces were very much equals. Um, life in the cavalry was in some ways different from life in the infantry. In some ways it was more difficult because in the infantry all you had to do was worry about yourself. In the cavalry you had to worry about yourself and your horse and the horse came first always. Your responsibility as a cavalryman was to get up in the morning, make sure your horse was fed and watered, you took care of grooming the animal, you took care of making sure that your equipment was in good shape, you took care of any veterinary issues that the horse had, you made sure it was properly shod, all those types of things, then you could focus on yourself. So cavalry duty was more exacting and more demanding simply because you had to be responsible for both yourself and for your horse. There are also different tactics, there are different applications. The, the primary role of cavalry has always been scouting, screening, and reconnaissance. So that means that cavalry was often distant from the rest of the army. And 
they're out doing scouting and picket duty, and it was often lonely, not very pleasant, difficult duty. Um, there's a one of my earlier books was a set of letters that I edited by a sergeant of the Sixth Pennsylvania Cavalry. He wrote home to his brother in a letter, and, and the line was so good I had to pick it for the title of the book, and it was, we have it damn hard out here, describing what it was like being out on picket duty in the wintertime. So their primary role was not fighting, but it was the other things you talked about, reconnaissance? Eventually it became fighting, but in the early days of the cavalry, they really followed the Napoleonic model. And in the Napoleonic model, there was heavy cavalry and light cavalry. The light cavalry was typically used for covering the flanks, scouting, screening the army's advance to keep the enemy away, and reconnaissance to find, find the enemy. And then there was heavy cavalry, which was used as an offensive weapon, typically big men on big horses carrying big weapons. Unfortunately, the advent of rifled weapons made heavy cavalry pretty much obsolete for the simple reason that the, the range of weapons became so long and a big man on a big horse is a pretty easy target. Plus, the terrain in the United States is obviously very different from the terrain in Europe. So the doctrine evolved differently, and traditionally the role of cavalry was strictly that of what the Napoleonic model would call light cavalry, although we had distinctions here. And in 1861, there were three types of mounted units. There was light cavalry, there were dragoons, who were trained to fight both mounted and dismounted. And finally, there was a red, the third regiment was called, or there were five regiments, but the, the third type was called the regiment of mounted rifles. And it was what it sounded like. It was men mounted on horses who moved from place to place, dismounted and fought like infantry using infantry weapons. With the coming of war in 1861, the federal government did away with those distinctions. And everybody was equipped and redesignated as cavalry. There were five units in the regular army, and a sixth one was raised. That's the sixth U.S. that fought in the Battle of Fairfield. And in the early days of, of the Civil War, the Union in particular did not make very effective use of its cavalry. The units were broken up. They didn't serve as cohesive units. There was no core structure. There was no really not even a brigade structure in the East had a company here and a company there parceled out as messengers and orderlies. It wasn't until the spring of 1863 when Joseph Hooker took command of the Army of the Potomac that the approximately 12,000 mounted men attached to the Army of the Potomac were massed into a corps of three divisions. And it's the combination of that massing of forces combined with, in the spring of 1864, them being armed with seven-shot Spencer repeating carbines, that the primary focus of the cavalry began to shift away from scouting, screening, and reconnaissance to becoming a mobile strike force. And by 1865, that was the primary role of the cavalry. Uh, in the spring of 1865, a, an officer by the name of James Harrison Wilson commanded a 16,000-man mounted army that tore through the heart of the Deep South. <clears throat> in the spring of 1865 and, and actually put a thorough defeat on, on Nathan Bedford Forrest at a place called Selma, Alabama, uh, not long before the surrender of Lee's army at Appomattox. And Wilson's 16,000-man mounted force was, was the largest mounted force and certainly the best equipped 
mounted force the world had ever seen. And it was very much the prototype for the type of tactics that are used by the Army's mounted units today, only instead of using men on horses, it's men in tanks. So they would be on horseback riding in, shooting as they rode on at fixed Sometimes, in, but sometimes, but in many instances, they would dismount and fight like infantry. Now, we ask what happens to the horses. One out of every four men would be dis detached with the specific duty of holding his and three of his friends' horses so that they were ready and they could mount up and jump on the horses and, and ride off if they needed to do so. So obviously if you fight dismounted, your, your strength is automatically reduced by 25%, but hopefully with, a, with repeating weapons like the Spencer or the 1st Washington DC Cavalry carried a 16-shot magazine weapon called the Henry Rifle that obviously had tremendous firepower. So hopefully the, you were able to offset that reduction in manpower by having firepower. And by the spring of 64, most of the Army of the Potomac's Cavalry Corps was armed with Spencers, and it was an extremely effective force. Now, what makes what John Buford did at Gettysburg so interesting is there were no Spencers in Buford's command. The, the Spencer carbine didn't exist yet. It didn't go into mass production until September of 63. And the only Spencer repeating rifles in the Army of the Potomac were all of the 5th and 4 companies of the 6th Michigan Cavalry of Custer's Brigade. And they weren't with Buford on July 1. So what Buford and his men did in conducting their covering force action on the 1st of July at Gettysburg was all accomplished using single-shot breech-loading carbines, which makes what they did all the more remarkable. Just to refresh everybody's memory, what did they do? Buford. Uh, deployed his men in a position that was approximately six miles away from what becomes the main Union line of battle on July 2nd or 3rd, and conducts what is today called in modern military parlance uh, a covering force action, the purpose of which is to trade space for time for the main body of the Army to come up. So Buford's Initial positions were, were simply vedette posts manned by two or three dismounted soldiers uh, far away, and their, their job is strictly to send up an early warning and perhaps fire a shot or two to delay the advance of the enemy, and then they fall back to the next prepared position, which is called the Grand Guard or the Picket Reserve. They're both the same thing, which is the next prepared position. In, in this case, it was just on the other side of, of what we call Knoxland Ridge today. Then the, it, a main line of battle was formed on Hers Ridge, and finally the, the ultimate line of battle that Buford formed and that was ultimately taken up by the infantry was on the western slope of McPherson's Ridge. And it took from the time that the first shots were fired by the picket post on Knoxland Ridge at the Whistler uh, blacksmith shop at anywhere between 6 and 7 in the morning. It took the Confederates almost two hours to deploy into line of battle from Column of March, so those first shots bought two hours. And then it took the Confederates another three or so hours to drive Buford's line all the way back to McPherson's Ridge and almost off McPherson's Ridge when the lead elements of the First Corps came up and relieved them. So that's, that's what makes what Buford's men accomplished with single-shot, non-repeating carbines as remarkable as what it was. 
Was that the key to the whole battle that the Union was able to take McPherson's Ridge on the first day? It's not so much it was able to take it, it's that the defense that Buford designed, which was to protect the high ground that is massed among Culp's Hill, Cemetery Hill, down Cemetery Ridge, and then to the Round Tops at the southern end of the line. Buford recognized that ground on the way into town on June 30th and recognized that was the place for the Army to stand and fight. So what he did was he designed this defense called a, a covering force action, is what it's called today, the purpose of which was to keep the, the fighting away from that defensive position so the main body of the Army could come up and occupy it. So to say to, to seize McPherson's Ridge is not necessarily accurate. To make it the locus of the fighting for the first day so that the high ground behind it could be occupied is a much better way to describe it. How would a cavalry keep the horses from getting spooked and just bolt when shooting was going on? Well, the, they spent an awful lot of time training. It, it was not uncommon for a cavalry regiment when it wasn't out in the field doing duty to spend three and four hours a day doing nothing but drilling. And among the things that they did was they were drilled at firing their weapons while mounted, and the horses eventually became used to it. So obviously a veteran horse is going to do better in that scenario than, than a new one. And as you can imagine, keeping a large mounted force supplied with horses is a challenge. And those logistics were never really solved by the Confederacy, but they were solved by the Union, and that's why by late 1864 there was a, a real substantive qualitative advantage for the Union cavalry over the Confederate. How would the Confederate Army feed all those horses that, that far from home? Well, they had two ways they could do it. One was to make sure they had plenty of fodder with them in the field, and the other was to live off the land. And I'm, I'm no authority on, on horse nutrition, so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go into any kind of detail, but suffice it to say that feeding a horse grain is much better for it than just having it eat grass. You can get much better results on much less food by feeding a horse grain than by letting it graze in a field of grass. So it's to the Army's advantage to have as much fodder with it as it can when it's in the field. And, of course, one of the things that Stewart is criticized for is for, as he comes toward Gettysburg, is capturing this 150 wagons that he brings with him. But what's often overlooked and what was critical is that those 150 wagons were filled with nothing but high-grade fodder. And if not for those 150 wagons of high-grade fodder, it's doubtful that Stewart's command would have been in condition to fight on, on East Cavalry Field. And it certainly would have been in, in condition to perform the superb service that it performed during the retreat from Gettysburg. So, you know, that, those 150 wagons are a mixed blessing, I guess is the best way to describe it. Your book focuses on three cavalry actions, Farnsworth Charge, South Cavalry Field, and the Battle of Fairfield. How do they all fit into the whole picture? They fit into the picture really a couple of ways, and, and let me kind of go at it backwards. The first of the units to arrive on the battlefield on July 3rd was Wesley Merritt's Reserve Brigade, which was actually part of Buford's division, but they were not here in Gettysburg on July 1st. They had been left behind in Maryland to guard wagon trains. Buford had been asking to have this brigade. It was his old command. It was the regular cavalry of the Army. He really wanted them with him, and he wasn't allowed to have them because it was felt they were better served guarding lines of supply. 
Finally, on the morning of July 3rd, they're ordered to come up to the battlefield from uh, Emmitsburg, Maryland, and they arrive at about 11 o'clock on the southern end of the battlefield, just about where they wanted to put the casino earlier this year, or last year. And um, <clears throat> one of the regiments will end uh, of that brigade uh, is the 6th U.S. Cavalry, and they will eventually be de detached and sent off to Fairfield to pursue a wagon train that was reported to be there. Where's Fairfield? Fairfield is about eight miles due west of the battlefield from where they left from. So they're going to end up well behind enemy lines, alone with a regiment of less than 300 officers and men with no artillery. Not a, not a happy scenario, we'll come back to that. The rest of that brigade, which consists of the 1st, 2nd, and 5th U.S. Cavalry and the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry, will end up attacking up the Emmitsburg Road, mostly dismounted against the far right flank of the Army of Northern Virginia's position. They will actually have some success in driving the Confederate infantry. Or for, well, initially there was about 100 Confederate cavalrymen there that were described uh, the, of the 1st South Carolina Cavalry and then a bunch of Teamsters and Wagoners that were described by the, the Colonel of the 1st South Carolina as the ragtag and bobtail of the Army. And the initial advances of, of the Merritt's dismounted troopers will drive them off and Confederate infantry from Evander Law's brigade will have to come over to repulse them. In the meantime, Merritt spots some open ground and sees an opportunity and sends the 5th U.S. Cavalry on a mounted charge that actually for a brief moment actually gets around the Confederate flank and into the rear, but the arrival, the timely arrival of that Confederate infantry that was sent by Evander Law will arrive just in time to repulse them, not far from what's the Eisenhower farm today, and they'll then fall back and, and that will deteriorate into dismounted skirmishing for the rest of the day, but it keeps Confederate infantry tied up. Alongside of it, to the right of, of uh, Merritt's brigade, will come one of the two brigades of Judson Kilpatrick's division, the other one being on East Cavalry Field under George Custer. This is the brigade under Elon Farnsworth. Uh, and Farnsworth's men will be operating on some, uh, some of the worst ground imaginable for mounted operations. It's hilly with bigger out, outcroppings of rock. It's heavily wooded. These are not good areas for, for mounted operations, but Kilpatrick has orders to operate on the Confederate flank, and he will do so over the course of, from about 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning until after the repulse of Pickett's charge. And the charge by Farnsworth, uh, a mount, Farnsworth's command is ordered to make a mounted charge. And although Farnsworth objects, he ultimately orders the, the charge and leads it himself. Only one of his units is able to, make, to break through, and that's the 1st Vermont Cavalry, largely because they're mounted on small, sure-footed Morgan horses, who are about the only ones that could handle that type of terrain. They break through the Confederate line, they charge at Confederate artillery in position on a hill, and are repulsed, much like the Charge of the Light Brigade at the Battle of Balaclava in the Crimean War in 1854. And they then turn right headed toward the Peach Orchard where they draw fire from Confederate artillery and, ca and uh, infantry. And then they head back in the direction of Big Round Top in, from whence they came, where they come under fire by first the 4th Alabama Infantry and ultimately by the 15th Alabama Infantry, which is the same unit that had fought for Chamberlain's men on Little Round Top the day before. And Farnsworth is killed 
leading that charge. Uh, a number of his soldiers are wounded and captured. Uh, an officer of the 1st Vermont who's riding at his side by the name of Captain Oliver Cushman uh, suffers a horrible wound when he's shot in the face at point-blank range. Um, and survives. He did survive. There are photos in the book that were taken of, of uh, Captain Cushman before the war and then a photo of him taken after the Battle of Gettysburg and there's a very prominent scar in his face that you can see. It's, it's very obvious and you see the toll of, of what combat and warfare took on, on Oliver Cushman. What's interesting about Farnsworth's charge is, is that I know of no other charge, let me rephrase that, I know of no other attack by the Union Army on any field in the Civil War where the officer commanding it was killed while leading the attack behind enemy lines. Farnsworth is, to the best of my knowledge, the only one, and I find it ironic that he's the only brigade commander or above on the Union side to fall on the battlefield at Gettysburg who doesn't have a monument, and I think that's sad. That has not changed since this book first came out. It has not changed. The, the Park Service doesn't want any more monuments because it doesn't want to be responsible for maintaining them. Their position is we can't afford to maintain the ones we already have. And I can understand that to some extent, but I would like to see the veterans' wishes fulfilled because one of the things I found when I was researching the original version of this in 1998 was an article that was published in a veteran's newspaper called the National Tribune in uh, 18, uh, I want to say 88 or 89, that described a proposed monument to Farnsworth in great detail talked about where they wanted to put it, so it was obviously something the veterans wanted, but it never got done. Who was General Farnsworth? Where was he from? He was born in, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, was born in Illinois and raised in Illinois. Ultimately it ended up in Michigan for a while. Uh, was expelled from the University of Michigan for uh, some drunken carousing that led to the death of one of his friends. His uncle was a prominent Republican congressman from Illinois by the name of John Franklin Farnsworth, who raised the 8th Illinois Cavalry Regiment at the outbreak of the war, which was often called Farnsworth's Big Abolition Regiment, so that should tell you something about his politics. And young Elon was commissioned to captain. Uh, Farnsworth eventually became a brigadier general and then uh, resigned his commission when he was elected to Congress and became, uh, well, you can imagine a Republican congressman from Illinois going to have some influence in and around the White House, as you might imagine. Uh, in the meantime, young Elon was serving on the staff of Alfred Pleasanton as a staff officer, and Pleasanton was nothing if not ambitious, and he came up with a scheme that was going to lead to him being promoted and to uh, him gaining another division for the Cavalry Corps from the defenses of Washington. The problem was that division was commanded by a, an officer who was senior to Pleasanton, but he was also of Hungarian descent, and Pleasanton was very much a xenophobe, and uh, he knew he had to get rid of this officer, his name was Julius Stahl, if he was going to maintain command of the Cavalry Corps. So he begins a letter writing campaign to Congressman Farnsworth talking about how this is a war that shouldn't be fought by foreigners and saying some things that would not be considered very kind today. And he, he made a power play. In one of the letters he says, I think your nephew would make a great general. So let's, let's get this division into the, the Corps and uh, I'll give him command of a brigade. 
And then he has Elon write a letter to his uncle saying something similar, and presto, it worked. Julius Stahl was relieved of command. His division was transferred to the Army of the Potomac's Cavalry Corps. Judson Kilpatrick was given command of it, and uh, the two brigade commanders were replaced. Uh, one was, re was replaced by George Custer. The other uh, simply didn't have a brigadier general in command of it, so when Elon Farnsworth was promoted to brigadier general and took command of it, he was the ranking officer in the brigade. He got to wear his general's star for exactly five days. He was something like 27 years old when he became a general? 27 or 28, young man. Tell me about Judson Kilpatrick, because he sounds like an interesting guy. I want to read this here. You say, Kilpatrick displayed flashes of brilliance as a combat officer, but was one of those scalawags men either loved or hated. And you say he was accused of taking bribes, stealing horses and tobacco and selling them, and improperly, and impropriety and borrowing money. He was actually in prison, in old Capitol prison for that for a time in the fall of 1862. Kilpatrick's from Deckerstown, New Jersey. His father was a militia officer and a farmer. Uh, Little Kill, as he was called, graduated from West Point in one of the classes of 1861. There were two a month apart because they accelerated one because they needed officers. Um, Kilpatrick ends up being commissioned an officer in the 5th New York Infantry, which was commanded by one of his former West Point instructors, then Colonel, by the time of the Battle of Gettysburg, Brigadier General Governor Kemble Warren who, of course, Gettysburg's the chief engineer officer of the Army of the Potomac. And Kilpatrick is the first West Point graduate officer in the Union Army wounded during the war. When he's wounded at the Battle of Big Bethel, which is the first engagement, land engagement of the war uh, in Virginia, when he returns, he returns to become the lieutenant colonel of the 2nd New York Cavalry. He ends up, as I said, being imprisoned for a time in Capitol Prison. Uh, actually and gets promoted to colonel while he's in there and when he gets ultimately gets released without charges being filed he does pretty well as, as first as a as a uh, regimental commander and then later as a brigade commander uh, particularly during the Stoneman raid in the spring of 63 and at the Battle of Brandy Station on June 9, 1863 and then gets promoted to brigadier general and assumes command of that third division when he comes in. He was a funny-looking little fellow he was short, he had long sideburns and a big nose, and he was generally considered to, to be an awkward rider. He was known for being a braggart. Theodore Lyman, who was a staff officer who served at Army of the Potomac headquarters in the fall of, from the fall of 63 on, described him as a frothy braggart without brains. Um, but he fancied himself uh, presidential material. He, he fancied himself presidential material. He fancied himself to be quite the ladies' man. Um, you might recognize his great-great-grandson if you watch CNN. His great-great-grandson is Anderson Cooper. And if you ever take a good look at a photo of Judson Kilpatrick and you hold it side by side with a photo of Anderson Cooper, you can see the family resemblance. Um, Kilpatrick is a guy who ultimately was a disappointment. He seemed to lose his nerve at critical moments. He was brave and injudicious, to use the words of, of uh, Charles Francis Adams. Uh, he was a guy who had moments, but at the end of the day, ultimately failed often. And one of the people he failed was 
was William Tecumseh Sherman. Uh, in the winter of 1864, Kilpatrick was assigned to command Sherman's cavalry, and uh, Sherman said of him, he's a hell of a damn fool, but he's just the kind of fool that I want to command this expedition. But by the end of the Carolinas campaign in 1865, um, Sherman had lost all faith in Kilpatrick's abilities. And um, that's why I don't think he ultimately ever reached the rank he expected to reach. He then leaves the Army, goes home to New Jersey, unsuccessfully runs for, for governor of New Jersey, uh, stages what is ultimately the first Civil War reenactment, writes a bad play, and ends up as a diplomat in South America where he died. Well, he he does not come across well in your book. And can you describe the, the, the argument between Farnsworth and Kilpatrick that just prior to the charge? There, there's some debate about whether it happened, whether there actually was an argument. There's an officer uh, by the name of Holden who left an account behind who said there was no argument. But, and, and some of the accounts of it that emerge after the war simply aren't believable. Some of the Texas infantry uh, who were based at, at the bottom of the hill where the charge comes down in an advanced position as the Confederate skirmish line, claimed they could hear this argument from a couple of hundred yards away over the din of battle. And I just simply can't imagine that happening. But supposedly, <clears throat> what exchange, the exchange that occurs is that Kilpatrick wants to have Farnsworth's brigade make a mounted charge. And Farnsworth recognizes that this is the worst possible ground one could ever want to conduct a mounted charge over, and he objects. And Kilpatrick says, fine, go scout. And Kilpatrick uh, gives him permission, and Farnsworth goes, and he, he takes an officer by the name of John Hammond with him, and he says, my God, Hammond, Kilpatrick's going to order a charge. And they come back, and Farnsworth and Hammond report what they already know, which is that it's terrible ground. Uh, at that point, an officer by the name of Major John Bennett of the 5th New York Cavalry happens to come by. Bennett's been commanding part of the, the, the skirmish line down below that's been engaged in, in fire with the Confederate skirmishers. And they ask him, and <clears throat> Major Bennett says, they don't show any signs of softened, being softened up to me. They're still resisting. And still, Kilpatrick orders the charge. So and what was the purpose of the charge? The purpose of the charge was to try and, and turn the flank, if possible, if not to capture artillery, at the very least to make mischief. And I, I want to touch on that in, in a bit. It's Napoleonics at work. One of Napoleon's maxims is, is that cavalry charges made at the right time can break an enemy. And the thought was, in the wake of the repulsive Pickett's charge, a Napoleonic cavalry charge, could in fact shatter Lee's line. But that was not to be because it was uphill into the teeth of 10 pieces of artillery. Had no chance of succeeding. But uh, Farnsworth recognized that. And there's an exchange that wasn't very audible, but it's to the effect of nobody but me leads my cavalry general. And uh, finally, Kilpatrick says something to, to uh, well, what triggers that is Kilpatrick says something to Farnsworth, the effect of, fine, if you won't lead the charge, I will. And Farnsworth was terribly offended by that because it was impugning his bravery. And he says, I'll lead the charge, but you have to take responsibility. And <clears throat> Kilpatrick is heard to say, fine, I, I will accept responsibility. And you, you, off he goes. You quote a Captain William Graham 
the career horse artillerist witnessed the exchange between Kilpatrick and Farnsworth, and he said, if Farnsworth had replied to Kilpatrick, I wish you would lead the charge general and I'll ride boot to boot with you, sir, the charge never would have been made. And I think Captain Graham was exactly right about that. It wasn't kill style. Uh, you have a section in the book that speculates on whether Farnsworth took his own life. There are lots of accounts out there, mostly Confederate, that suggest that he did. And I, I go through many of them, not all of them, but many of them, and relate them verbatim and, and ultimately allow the reader to draw his or her own conclusion. But being a lawyer, I can't resist arguing my case. And one of the things that I did was I pointed out two things. I pointed out the fact that when Farnsworth's body was retrieved the next day by the regimental surgeon of the 1st Vermont Cavalry, uh, that officer reported that there were no wounds above the shoulders. And of course, many of the accounts were that Farnsworth blew his own brains out. Well, you would think that a pistol ball would have left a, a visible wound. So, and the doctor also points out that there were multiple wounds, any number of which would have been fatal. So that's one. And the other reason why I tend to think it doesn't happen, it didn't happen, is for the simple reason that the only reason why I believe Farnsworth led the charge at all was because Kilpatrick had challenged his courage. And if that's the case, if I'm right about that, why would he then take the coward's way out and take his own life? This is after he had been seriously wounded. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense to me. So I, I ultimately tell the reader to draw your own conclusion, but I make my own thoughts known. Now, the second of your three cavalry actions is uh, South Cavalry Field. Right. And what's, what's in, interesting about South Cavalry Field is that it was in terms of casualties, 50, 60, very small engagement. What's intriguing about it, though, is that charge that was made that briefly got around the flank and was repulsed. None less than, than James Longstreet recognized the threat. And Longstreet, when he wrote his memoirs, talked about how a charge by a whole brigade, or perhaps a division there, and these are Longstreet's words, not mine, could have made more mischief than any other cavalry charge in history. So imagine, if you will, that if you shift Farnsworth's brigade from where it attacked in the vicinity of Little Round Top to the Emmitsburg Road, where Merritt's attack takes place, and you bring Merritt's brigade in to the left of Farnsworth's brigade, and you charge the both of them around that flank, then you have a two-brigade-sized force of very good units operating in Robert E. Lee's rear. Imagine, if you will, the havoc that they could have created. The problem is that Merritt's attack on the Emmitsburg Road and Kilpatrick's attack were completely uncoordinated because they were from different commands. Farnsworth is part of Kilpatrick's 3rd Division, Merritt is part of Buford's 1st Division, and Buford and the other two brigades aren't even on the battlefield. They're in Westminster, Maryland. So Merritt is operating in a vacuum. There's no coordination between Merritt and Kilpatrick whatsoever. So you've got a breakdown in the chain of command. So imagine, though, if you will, that there is a guiding spirit in the form of Alfred Pleasanton, who's the Cavalry Corps commander who should have been responsible for this. 
coordinating the attacks of these two brigades, they could have created a great deal of havoc. Problem is that Pleasanton was tied to Army headquarters. He was acting as the de facto chief of staff to Meade, General Butterfield, the chief of staff having been wounded. Plus, Meade and Butterfield hated each other's guts and didn't work together very well. So uh, Meade kept Pleasanton on a very short leash, and the purpose of that was to make sure there was somebody there to serve basically as chief of staff. And it meant that by doing that duty, Pleasanton wasn't doing his primary job, which was to be the, chief, the commander of the Cavalry Corps, which is how you have these uncoordinated attacks going on piecemeal the way they did. What did it mean to, to the novice like myself? What does it mean to turn Lee's flank? What that means is, is that because of the disposition of troops and the tactics of the Civil War where men tended to fight shoulder to shoulder, you were fine as long as you were fighting straight ahead. But if someone came at your side, it created a big problem because you had to shift and there was a, quite a bit of logistical stuff that had to take place for the shift to take place. So if you, the object in Civil War tactics wasn't a frontal assault, it was typically a flank assault where you'd hit the end of the line, catch them by surprise before they could turn and that in turn would cause the line to fall. So if you hit the end of the line and you hit the flank and you hit it before they can respond by turning to shift to meet the threat, that's called refusing the flank, um, you will then expose that whole line to being turned. In other words, you can get around behind it or you can go straight up the line. Either way, it's, going to have, it's got no choice. It's got to break. So that was the whole object. And imagine two full brigades of cavalry, some 4,000 mounted men, crashing into the, end of the, into the rear of Lee's line as Lee is waiting to see whether Meade is going to launch an infantry counterattack after the repulse of Pickett's charge. It was, I call it the lost opportunity, and I think it really was a great lost opportunity. Is that the kind of thing that just happened because communication was the way it was, so hard to get messages? Fog of war types of things, you know, I mean, they, they have those problems today, even with cell phones and walkie-talkies, and <clears throat> so imagine a time period where the only way to really effectively communicate was you carry a note or you carry a message, and you got to go back and forth with messengers. And these opportunities typically only presented themselves for a few minutes or a few seconds, and if you didn't have the ability to respond to it and react quickly, it was going to go away before somebody could bring you orders. So a lot of it is fog of war. Now, you touched on it briefly earlier, but the, the third one, the Battle of Fairfield, was about eight miles away. Is that considered part of the Battle of Gettysburg? It is. It is. There's a couple of War Department markers out there. Um, <clears throat> what's interesting about the Battle of Fairfield is, is that there is a mountain pass out there. It's, it's a gap in the South Mountain Range called the Fairfield Gap. You've got South Mountain Range on this end and, and a peak called, uh, oh dear, Lawson, ja uh, Jack's Mountain at the southern end. <coughs> and the Fairfield Gap is very narrow. It's only 150, 200 feet wide. And there's a, a swift running creek that runs along the base of it, and that's actually what created the gap. So if you send a force out there to hold that gap with artillery, 
you could hold it almost indefinitely and because it would be very difficult to flank and it would be almost impossible to attack directly. And had the Union occupied those Jack's Mountain passes, there's one on either side of Jack's Mountain, they would have forced Lee to take a different route for the retreat. So perhaps a better use of Merritt's brigade would have been to send the whole brigade out there to take those and seize those mountains passes instead of sending them up the Emmitsburg Road at Gettysburg. Instead, Merritt will send the 6th U.S., less than 300 officers and men, without artillery to go try and capture this wagon train. And when they get there, they discover not just a few wagons in a wagon train, but two full brigades of Confederate cavalry. And um, the lead brigade in that column of march was commanded by a fellow by the name of Brigadier General William Edmondson Grumble Jones. And if ever there was somebody whose nickname suited his personality, it was Grumble Jones. And uh, Grumble's guys put a pretty good whipping on the 6th U.S. Cavalry out there. And um, it was a pretty nasty fight. The first charge was repulsed by, by the 6th U.S. And then the second charge succeeded. There were two, ultimately two medals of honor awarded to soldiers of the 6th U.S. Cavalry for their uh, valor in the fight there. And uh, one of those scenes is depicted on the cover of the book. That's uh, Sergeant Martin Schwenk of the 6th U.S. Saving the, the, I'm sorry, Sergeant George C. Platt, excuse me, of the 6th U.S. Cavalry, saving the, the regimental colors from being captured. And there is, of course, a bridge named in Philadelphia for George Platt. Um, one of the officers who was wounded out at, at the uh, fight at Fairfield was a 22 or 23-year-old lieutenant from northeastern Ohio by the name of Adna Ronanzik Chafee. Uh, by 1904, Adna Chafee is the commanding general of the United States Army. And uh, his son, Major General Adna Rodanza Chafee Jr., would have been the first commander of the Army Tank Corps in World War II, except that he died early in 1942, which opened up a slot for a fellow by the name of George S. Patton Jr. So all of this is connected. And Patton, of course, was an old horse cavalryman himself. I want to ask about this, the, the saving of the colors or losing of the colors. Why is that so significant? Well, your regimental colors were the rallying point. It was the regimental colors and the national colors were the center of the line. It was the thing that you rallied on, and they were the pride of every regiment. So the last thing you wanted to do was lose your colors because that was a humiliating thing. But it was more than symbolic? I mean, it had a practical? It had a, absolutely had a practical because you would rally on the flag. That man, the, the color bearer, was always to be in the center of the line, and everything tactically was oriented around that color bearer. So if you lose your, your colors, not only do you have that embarrassment, but you also have the problem of you've lost your rallying point. So it was a big deal. And the image there painted by Don Stivers that's on the, the cover of the book is of Sergeant Platt saving the six U.S.'s colors from being captured at Fairfield. And he was awarded a Medal of Honor for that. Now, you, uh, in, in your book, there's quite a few people who do not come across well for, for various reasons. Who, who distinguishes themselves? There's a lot of guys. Chafee, for one. Chafee was badly wounded and refused to give his parole and was left behind by the Confederates and eventually was able to return to duty. He was given a brevet promotion for that. Farnsworth, I think, clearly distinguished himself with his courage. 
<coughs> uh, Major John Hammond of the 5th New York Cavalry, who went on the scouting expedition with him, deserves credit. The horse artillerists who accompanied these men uh, deserve credit. Certainly the Confederates on the other side who defended, in particular against Farnsworth's charge, deserve credit. Do I think that ordering the charge was a foolhardy thing to do? Absolutely. Do I think Kilpatrick would have been censured had the, the Union lost the Battle of Gettysburg? Absolutely. But winning forgives a lot. And it forgave Kilpatrick. It certainly forgave Daniel Sickles. I think certainly had there been a Union defeat at Gettysburg, Sickles would have been court-martialed. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Was there always, after a battle like this, always an inquest to see who did well or who blundered or, and who should be punished? Because you, you say in the book here that Kilpatrick was promoted after this and Merritt was promoted after this, but, but was there always that study? Like, well, Merritt will, of course, end up being the last commander of the Cavalry Corps at the end of the war. Um, Merritt will go on to have a 43-year career in the regular army and commanded the expedition that captured Manila in 1898. When he retired, he was a second-ranking officer in the Army. So this is a guy who obviously was a good soldier. But at the same time, he'd only been promoted to Brigadier General on June 28th, and these events take place on July 3rd. And this is his first engagement commanding troops on, on the battlefield. So because of that, I tend to give him a little bit of slack. Kilpatrick's another story. Well, he's, he's already had two engagements where he's been a division commander. And he has already proven himself to be somewhat rash. And Kilpatrick, I think, was so eager for self-aggrandizement that he made a poor decision in ordering that charge. And it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback, and it's easy to sit back and say, what was he thinking? And you try not to do that so much, you have to kind of put yourself in his shoes, and he had orders to operate on that flank. He had orders to try and make mischief, and I think he's, he legitimately believed that he had an opportunity. And it was a poor choice. And I don't condemn that poor choice as much as I do the failure to communicate and coordinate with merit. That's what I think is really the big sin. More than anything else. How do you keep all the names and places straight in your mind? Are you always reading and studying and refreshing the names? That and when you live with them as long as I have, it's easy to keep them straight. I've now written this same book twice. So it's not hard to keep them straight. And of course, uh, Wesley Merritt, like I said, ends up being the last division or the last corps commander of the Army of the Potomac's Cavalry Corps. So he will be there throughout the rest of the war in a position of command responsibility. Kilpatrick will end up commanding cavalry under Sherman in the West. And uh, I ended up writing a book about another one of Kilpatrick's battles. So he's a guy that I've spent a lot of time with. I'm, he's not my favorite officer, which is why he I started, started to, to say, say unfortunately. unfortunately. <laughs> um, but he's a colorful fellow. And he does make for for entertaining reading. So he does have his, some purpose in life. but. It's one of the great, I'm not one for what ifs, I try to avoid them, but there's one I can't resist, and that is what if John Buford hadn't died in 1863? And I often wonder what that Cavalry Corps would have looked like. Now, it's entirely possible he wouldn't have been there because he'd been asked to go west to take command of the Army of the Cumberland's Cavalry Corps at Chattanooga. And 
the typhoid fever that took his life prevented him from doing that. But imagine, if you will, a battle between John Buford and Nathan Bedford Forrest. And one of Forrest's division commanders was John Buford's first cousin, Abraham Buford. So that might have been quite the, quite the, the battle royale. We're just about out of time. What, um, what book are you working on now? I am just about to get started editing a set of letters by an officer of the 5th Michigan Cavalry who served on Custer's staff, who was killed at the Battle of Front Royal in August of 1864. So I've got that project. I've got one I'm doing with my friend Scott Patchen where we're going to do a tactical study the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg. And uh, I also need to finish a, a project I started, which is uh, a study of Phil Sheridan's May 1864 Richmond raid that led to the death of Jeb Stewart at the Battle of Yellow Tavern. We'll have to keep an eye on those when they're published, and we hope you will come back. I'd love to. We've been speaking with Eric Wittenberg. He is the author of this book, Gettysburg's Forgotten Cavalry Actions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.